episode 222, Indus Ketan, founder and CEO of the technology company, Cola. I think as an entrepreneur, um, you live a life of making mistakes and correcting it. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Indus, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake222. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Indus Ketan. He is the CEO and founder of Colum. It's a company funded by Sequoia and Nexus. Um, we'll learn a little bit about Colum here. But Indus has 20 years of business growth, product management, and SaaS experience, software as a service, if you don't know that term. He's analyzed SaaS buying uh, for more than 20 companies uh, with over $500,000 in SaaS spend. It has been the leader of growth for a quote-unquote unicorn company. Um, Indus grew up in a mining town uh, in India where, uh, as it says in his bio, there were two to three homicides daily. That was the norm. Um, He escaped what he calls the India coal mafia. Um, that 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 plagued his life. He left for America, where he's made the most of the move. He became a founder, a father, and a pilot. And in, uh, Indus aims to help others make the same kind of growth in their business and their life. So, uh, Indus, we've got uh, an interesting background in bio. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. You know, great to have, great to see you again. Yeah, good good to talk with you. You know, real quick, because we, we have listeners who are from, you know, the tech and entrepreneurship space. I explained SaaS. I think I got the acronym correctly. When you say unicorn, like what's the quick pitch of what that means these days in tech circles? Unicorn typically is a word used in venture-funded startup circles for companies that have achieved a valuation of a billion dollars. Yeah. And um, how, I mean, it's not at, well, I guess we we don't have... I was about to say rarer, not as rare as a real unicorn, but that's a dumb thing to say in the late afternoon. But it's meant it's meant to indicate that it's rare. Are we seeing more unicorns in the tech space now? I think we saw quite a bit of jump in the unicorn. It's supposed to be rarer. You know, when the term was coined probably 10 years ago, if I'm if I'm getting her name right, uh, there's a lady by the name Eileen Lee. Uh, she coined the term when she wrote an article on TechCrunch saying, oh, we need to define these mythical creatures, startups that have achieved a $10 billion valuation. Let's call them unicorn. And it became a rage. You'll not believe it at that time. Supposed to be a few. Fast forward to 2020, 2021, 2022. There's so much money flowing in venture capital. Every entrepreneur worth his salt saying, I want to be a unicorn founder. Doesn't matter what my business is or not. So rarer when it was coined, but 1,600 of them today, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. So if everybody's a unicorn, nobody is a unicorn, I guess. Or Yeah. But we can all aspire to that. There's nothing wrong with that. So, so to growth and, and that level of valuation and success, right? I think it's a, it's a good goalpost and a milestone to have. But valuations are sometimes a false indicator of success. 
Um, whereas revenue, customer acquisition, team, and how good your product is, you know, not very much quantifiable. Revenue is not officially disclosed. That's another problem. Hence, media fawns over valuation. Hence, it became, you know, a much maligned term to be associated within the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for explaining that a little bit. And then, you know, normally we, we want to jump right into the, the my favorite mistake story, but I'm going to deviate from script a little bit more. Um, that, that phrase in your bio, um, I have to ask a little bit because this, this is your phrase, not mine, India Coal Mafia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And when you, when you say it plagued your life, um, tell us a little bit about that. So I grew up in a mining town in eastern India. It, it is called the Charia coal field. If you correlate with the history of, let's say, Tennessee Valley coal deposits or Pittsburgh neighborhood, the larger Pittsburgh coal deposits, you know, Pittsburgh is the reason that the whole re region of Pittsburgh became very popular because coal deposits, a confluence of a couple of rivers, so easy in and out. And then money coming from Mr. Rockefeller and others. So imagine that playing out in a smaller scale on a small in a small town, and that's where I, I grew up. Uh, it's called the Jharia Coal Fields in a in a uh, small suburb called Danbad. The problem is India is still immature in terms of politics and uh, you know citizen well-being, and the mafia essentially would have their army to mine coal to trouble people and whosoever gets in their way like you know very much like your new york mafia but for coal not for drugs or booze but for coal and i vividly remember my house was located on the edge of a road hundreds of dump trucks you know debris going one way and then coal going the other way debris or sand used to fill up the mine after coal has been excavated and the life was i would say very mellow, you know, you know, living in that every day we'll hear stories about people getting killed, people getting shot at at gas stations or randomly bystander. Not not a good position to be in, but you know, luckily did my undergrad and left India and been mm -hmm. here for so long. Yeah. Well, it, it, it are things is is the violence still uh, a problem back there as it was before you left? The violence has abated quite a bit. Um, the mines have been nationalized, controlled by the government. The corruption has not gone away. The violence has gone away. Plus, media, you know, highlights the violence. It kind of brings national politics into the mix. It kind of fixes it to a greater deal. So it has reduced to probably 10% of what it was, like even lesser. It's, it's quite a bit checked now. So it has kind of gone away. My dad is still there. My mom's still there. So it's much better than what it was. Okay. Well, that's that's good to hear. So thank you for letting me ask um, about that a little bit. So um, we'll come back to talking about, um, you know, Colum and some of your startup and entrepreneurship experience a little bit. But Indus, as we normally do, we'll get back on the theme of the podcast here. With the different things you've done in your career, what would you say is your favorite mistake? I think as an entrepreneur, um, you live a life of making mistakes and correcting it. You know, some of them you could correct on a daily basis. Let's say you had a wrong hire, you try to amend, you know, train that person. If not, you figure out a way to part ways. Yeah, that's fixable. 
many mistakes are not fixable. It's like linear, you know, going forward and you cannot come back. One of the startups I did before the current one is a or was a mobile security company called Bitser Mobile. You know, me and two of my co-founders. And this was around the time when iPhones became hugely popular. And every executive wanted to have an iPhone in their holster. And if you are an enterprise employee, your IT department would say, hey, no way, you got to use a BlackBerry because that's the you know, approved device of choice. <laughs> right. But the executives would you know, sh- shoot the uh, dictum and say, no, are we going to bring our iPads and iPhones? And this was this war that went on. And we found a hack to enable executives to use their iPhone in an enterprise environment without violating security policies. That's how Bitser, my previous startup, was born. But, but again, we were early. And hence, it took us time to reach a velocity of you know, consistent customer acquisition. And we hit a plateau in 2013. And you know, one thing led to other Another, and we found Oracle one is interested in us. So we sold the company to Oracle in 2013, December, 2014, January. You know, happy ending, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> congrats, but, but, but what happened then? Fast forward uh, four or five years later, or three years later, all of a sudden, the market for what we built and sold it, we found that we did it premature. because. The market sold that prematurely. We sold it prematurely. Mm. The reason we sold it, we thought that the market for what we built is small. There are only 500 customers in the world that would potentially use a product. So it's a small market. But 2014, internet and enterprise and SaaS were just about to come out. A lot of new applications were getting ready. We were a single sign-on product. We were a security product for mobile device. And fast forward to 2021, Okta, the security and and identity vendor, acquired a company called Auth0 for $6.5 billion. And that was much more than the price Oracle paid. We paid, we got less than $100 million. Okay. So, you know, 100 times magnitude of, what could have been possible, not just the number in terms of acquisition dollars, but number of customers, the the revenue, the impact you could have. And the mistake there was, we should have persisted. We should have iterated the product. I should have convinced my board to go at least a couple of years more instead of saying, yes, let's get acquired by Oracle. And reflecting on that is, uh, of course, give me uh, a 60 seconds, uh, you know, gap in my heartbeat, uh, still alive. <laughs> right. But at the same time, it's a huge learning in terms of you cannot win the market in a day. You got to persist. You got to try. You got to iterate and, you know, figure out the longer horizon of the journey rather than, hey, you could have a win and a loss in a shorter moment. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, well, for, for one, thank you for sharing the story and, and the reflections. And just I'd love to sort of unpack a little bit of, you know, the thought process or the discussion at the time, you know, because like any major decision, I mean, 
Well, I'm curious, like, how, how much did you think, I mean, how convinced were you that it was the right decision before we talk about kind of later evaluating how it panned out? Was there pressure from the board to go ahead and sell, get the exit, investors could cash out? Were, were you wanted to stick with it or were you sort of, where, 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 where were you, like, were you on the fence or were you convinced to help sell? So me and my uh, co-founders were divided amongst three of us. You know, uh, I would like a pendulum sometimes swing on this or the other side. Um, so we were conflicted and, and divided that is this the right path? But at the same time, we are also being rational that, hey, if we don't take this path, we won't be able to raise any more money. And it will be shutting down the whole company in the next six to 12 months. We'll run out of cash and we'll shut down. Now, of course, a little bit of pressure from the board saying, hey, you got the bird in the hand. What more do you know? And in, in the back of my heart and Ali, my co-founder and CTO, we both thought quite a bit saying, maybe we should persist. But then, you know, we, when we were down in the pits, they say, no, we should exit. You know, you know. Again, it's never a right or wrong answer. It's the rumination of a decision. So, of course, a little bit of a, a, I would not say pressure, but you know, justification of the cause from the board saying, "Hey, you have Oracle. This will be great for you the rest of your careers. You know, you want to align yourself." So, I think reflecting on it, I think we should have, at least, I should have put my foot down and said, oh, no, I disagree. Sometimes you agree thinking maybe they are right. Mm. Uh, even if you if you think you're right, but you don't have data. You know, you just go sure. on your gut. It's projections and forecasts and assumptions, right? Yeah, and, and this is 2013. If that was the same case, like a few years down the road, it was easy because either market has slightly more opened up you know, whether you want to run it or not is a different decision. So we did not run out of steam. So we still had it enough to do it, but the variables were not aligning with us to say, no, we want to go longer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to think through a scenario like that. There's, you know, the as you, I think, touched on the risk of not selling, like, I mean, that could have worked out as a mistake. You You don't, you don't know. Um, you're, you're making the best decision you can at the moment. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, like, it seems like maybe there's a different thought process. You were one of the co-founders. This is your company, as opposed to investors who are looking at you as being one of many portfolio companies. Like what, I mean, it's a, there's a different thought process and a different calculus, would you say? Absolutely. So investor in all their goodness, right? So they have a view of the company, what, we as entrepreneurs running the company project to them. You know, as an example, if I go back on my monthly board meeting and say, hey, business is not doing well, they'll get a temperature that the business is not doing well. They are not running this, right? You as an entrepreneur are. So entrepreneurs view and investors view are essentially projections of each other. It's a mirror. And contrary to fact, if I every day I go and say, hey, the business is doing great. And all of a sudden, 30 days later, I say, oh, business is not doing uh, great. Uh, I'm going to go out of business tomorrow. 
that's equally bad. Right. So yeah. you, you have to project like a a truth checklist to them saying, this is what's right. This is not uh, not going well. These are the issues. I screwed up in these areas. These areas require fixing, like a very objective checklist of things that are going well, not so well, and let them draw a conclusion whether you're doing great or not. And hence, you know, to your question, investors look at that lens as in what you are doing and what you're telling us, this is what you should do. In in our case, we were conveying this to our investors back then, hey, sales is not happening, right? And it went on for six months. So imagine if you're an investor who only gets that narrative in every monthly board meeting because they see the number, the sales is not happening, which means the market is not there. How And they say, oh, you're spending money on marketing. You're spending money on customer acquisition. You have a product which has been sold to like 10 companies. So there is a need, but the demand is very little because the number of customers we could buy. And that's the story they were listening to on a monthly basis. So they'll say, hey, the best outcome is go sell. And this is what happens with investors across portfolios. And what you mirror is what they're going to give you back. Yeah, yeah. I have one question about the tech, because you know, my wife's worked in big corporate settings. She did not want to give up her BlackBerry. Like she was one of the last holdouts. She loved that keyboard, and um, but um, I, I I understand the appeal, um, you know, with iPhone. Was was that something that Apple was going to find a way to address that maybe created risk then for that company at the time? Like you know, when when do they build in a feature that basically does what your company had been doing? Is that a risk? Definitely a feature could be projected as a risk very much. So if you remember, if you remember Steve Jobs in his famous iPhone keynote, he used the fact that the screen does not have any tactical input. You know, it was all screen and you tap it on screen instead of having the 50% of the screen. I very much remember he had a you know PowerPoint or or a keynote slide where the fifty percent of the screen was taken up by key, keyboard, and he laughed at it. So their value problem was not having a keyboard, which in my mind pissed off a lot of Puritans who wanted a keyboard on top of iPhone. Now, and that's the reason many people hated it because you don't have a tact, tactile feedback whether your key is pressed or not. But I think we got used to it. I think we got used to <laughs> right. tapping on the hard screen all the time, right? So, well, but it was it was definitely a detriment. I remember many executives who felt threatened by Apple. Um, if I'm if I'm not wrong, Steve Ballmer made this comment saying he doesn't even have a keyboard, and and laughed out loud on why iPhone would fail. A lot of people thought that was a mistake. I'm, yeah, I mean, and sometimes only time, <laughs> only time will tell when it comes to these things. These big decisions, whether it's the design of a product or the sale of a company, there's no there's no easy answers for for that type of quote unquote mistake. A big decision, and on on you know in the innovation realm, right? So there's probably this different question of like earlier you talked about maybe you put your foot down more. I'm sure you know from from a product 
design or software design standpoint, sometimes a founder has to do the same thing. People are saying that's a mistake. You're like, well, I could be wrong or I have a vision here, (laughs) right? And there are examples supporting that because if you look at, uh, let's pick one, Uh, let's pick Amazon phone, I think Fire Phone. Fire Phone. Yeah, and Amazon Fire TV and other products. And I remember reading, they spent billions of dollars building and promoting that. It was a mistake. But from the ashes of Fire Phone and Fire TV came out Alexa and Echo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think as, as an entrepreneur looking forward, you project what would happen in the market. And yep, if it fails, figure out how to you know cover your losses and make lemonade out of it. So I think, yeah. 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 Taking some piece of what might have otherwise been a failed. Um, technology wasn't that part of the or was that part of the origin story for Slack or also Twitter or am I am I thinking about yeah yeah it's like a message right. um, that was just something internal and they're like oh really that that's the company right yeah so Twitter's origin story that Audio Corp where uh, Evan Williams uh, was working and he was the CEO. And the podcast application platform failed, and they, hey, what else do we have? All right, we have this, you know, way to project to the world, broadcast to the world, and that's how, you know, I think Jack Dorsey and um, others they got this idea. They start working on it. I think same thing with Slack. They were working on um, gaming product. If I'm I not think wrong. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so. they were using some hacky tool to message each other, or did not find something suitable and slack was born yeah yeah so happy accidents um sometimes i guess yeah and and even in science you know um pierre and madame curie husband and wife they discovered like three greatest scientific discoveries of that time and in fact now right you know radium was discovered and a couple of other things and it's all happy accidents yeah. So I want to ask one other question, kind of maybe wrapping up, you know, the story you had told of selling that company, wishing you had held out and put your foot down. Um, when you think about, you know, a possible future opportunity to sell a company, to be acquired, would you think through that differently? And if if so, would you try to guard against the risk of over-adjusting and being in a situation where then the story is, oh, I held on too long. I should have sold it years earlier. I mean, it seems like there's a risk of over-adjusting. What what are your thoughts on that in general, even? Definitely there's a risk of over-adjusting, but I think in software, we have not seen enough. Uh, The software bets are very long and, you know, opportunity to grow thousands of times from the original idea because I'll give you an example. You know, today software is a trillion dollars every year across the world. If you look at hundreds of other things like automobile, there are billion automobiles across the world. Uh, the GDP of automobile itself is ten trillion. When I say GDP, the value of all the automobiles and parts and services and around it. Software is very early. So I think it has still 10 
X more to go. So I think every bet in software could be um, could be wagered to be over-indexed. You could take a bet saying, I'm going to over-index on it. Maybe I'll fail, but the, the chances are lower. You could fail for other reasons, running out of cash, your wife or your spouse saying, no, you're done. you got to spend time with kids. You know, shut it down or sell it to someone. But I think softer you could take a bet, but there are other reasons to sell and, you know, you need cash or you've done it, you're burnt up. And, and that's real, you know, founder. I could say that, you know, if I, if I run one thing for 10 years, I'll be burnt out midway. I'm 100% sure how my mind works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you sharing that story and just in your reflections and soon to be holding your head high, you've moved on to, to other things instead of work, spending too much. I know you've written about it on LinkedIn. I hope you don't spend too much time thinking of, uh, what you wish had happened, what you wish you'd done, that you've learned from it rather than agonizing over it, I hope. I think it's 10 years. So I've kind of tempered down quite a bit. Uh, don't agonize over it at all. Uh, if I had not done anything about it, I'll give you a 30 second bite on that. If I had not started another company, if I had not worked for another high growth startup, I would be in that mode of regret forever. Versus I can't move on, right? I got to take another shot at things and see what, what life does to me. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, that's very well said. It's very thoughtful. Thank you for, for sharing that. Now, I might be making a mistake here because people might be saying, okay, you've got a, a serial entrepreneur, multiple times founder, a CEO of a company. I want to ask you about flying planes. <laughs> if that's all right. Sure. Absolutely. Um, do that. You mentioned... The word checklist already, and 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 that's very associated with um, with aviation. So I was wondering, you know, if you could talk um, about flying a plane and 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 the need. You know, it's different than let's say an innovation mistake. We tried to invent something and like, oh, didn't work out. We found something positive. Life goes on. Mistakes, and we all know, like mistakes in aviation could be really really bad to the point of being deadly. So it's a different environment. How do you think about preventing mistakes when you're flying, whether that's through checklists or, or other methods? Tell, tell us about that. I think checklist is, is a great way to summarize uh, the life of an aviator. Um, when I started flying, my instructor told me, you don't trust yourself. You don't trust the plane. You don't trust the environment around you. You don't trust anything. Only thing you trust is the checklist. So let's say you are up in the air and your engine dies. What do you do? You don't freak out. You don't trust your emotions. You just follow, okay, engine fire or engine stop. What do I do? Okay, restart. Okay, what do I do? Check my fuel line. Okay, what? check my throttle. What do I do? So you basically follow a debugging procedure for everything that happens in that moment. Same thing for going up in the air. So let's say I go out to fly today afternoon. Okay, I have a 18-item checklist to inspect the plane. Then I go inside and inspect the instruments. Then I do a run-up checklist. Then I do a takeoff. So it's all series of checklists, some short, some long, up until the time I'm in cruise. Even if you're in cruise, although your checklist is done, but you are hyper-aware, you are looking at your surroundings, your headphones are on, you're listening to ATC. 
And that is completely orthogonal to how software is built. Software yeah. is, hey, let's throw it at the wall. If it fails, <laughs> I'm going to redo and throw it at the wall again because right. there's no life lost. There's no damage done. Very different life in the air versus on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I use checklists related to podcasts, webinars, situations that are hardly life-altering mistakes of something when something um, goes wrong. But checklists can be really helpful. Um, you know, that said, like there's, I think, especially when it comes to aviation or when people apply checklists in the operating room, the presence of checklists doesn't mean I can come in and fly the plane or that I could come in and do surgery. You know, I think it's just this interesting balance of having um, training, skill, practice, but then, you know, checklists seem like they're there um, for, for the unusual situations. You still have to be a skilled pilot aided by the checklist, right? Yeah, the goal of the checklist is to throw away your emotional decision-making skills and you know, throw away your ego and pride <laughs> in the dustbin and use a checklist to follow because you know, unfortunately what happens is as human beings, we trust our brain, our judgment, our memory more than we should and that's mm -hmm. where fatal mistakes happen. Yeah. And there's a lot of situations, um, I don't know if any, you know, there are so few aviation disasters, thankfully, these days. I'm going to say knock on wood as someone who flies a fair amount here. But I, you know, I, I know stories and I've included in my book from operating rooms. Surgical mistakes started happening as an aftermath of, of people getting lax about following the checklists. Like there's almost this, this form of um, cognitive bias where you're using the checklist and there's no mistakes. And then like somehow people forget, like maybe there's been no mistakes because we're using the checklist. Like people maybe get a little overconfident and say, well, look, we don't make these mistakes anymore. Maybe we don't need the checklist. And then mm, maybe not that first time, but then, then that, that reinforces, right? Like, oh, we didn't use the checklist today. We didn't make a mistake until a mistake happens yeah. or you, you get a cluster of uh, mistakes. Um, is it, Fair to say, and I know you're on the you know the private aviation side of things, but I, it seems like commercial aviation or pilots in general is it fair to say are, are, are much more disciplined about the checklist. Um, I think all of us are. So it has been injected into me, you know, in a very nicely paneled uh, piece of paper that I printed out. And then filed in a booklet that I always carry. If I don't do it, it's at my own peril. Nobody's watching me except, you know, my um, my kids who want me to come back home after a successful flight, right? In in commercial aviation, it is hyper data entry driven, log driven. So your cockpit voice recorder is recording you if you did not follow a checklist set of items. Your co-pilot, your junior officer, he's looking up to you if you have not followed the checklist. And the reason we have two people in commercial is for that reason. One's reading, one's doing. And this guy who's reading, he's also skilled. And, and the guy who's doing is also skilled. So if somebody meets, misses a beat, there is at least one more person to catch yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and aviation, I think, has a better track record of learning from incidents, accidents, or near, you know, near misses, where like you you point out in this um, 
one one person in the cockpit clearly flying the plane, the other person looking up things. So there was uh, one crash, I believe, decades ago where um, both pilots were uh, in, involved in uh, debugging, troubleshooting. Nobody noticed that they were running out of fuel. Ah, right. So I think there's this like division of you know who who is doing what. Don't lose track of flying the plane or, or looking at these other. Um, these other details. Um, but when you say uh, when it's you know, not following the checklist is at your own peril, I think that's the clear uh, difference between aviation and healthcare. The surgeon <laughs> uh, is not putting themselves at peril the way, you know, the pilots in it together with, with you as the passengers, you can count on that. And I'm not trying to besmirch surgeons or, but it's just, it's a different, it's a different dynamic. Um, are we in it together or, yeah, I could see where people would get more lax um, for different reasons, time pressures. And again, I'm not trying to blame surgeons or, or beat them up. It's just it's a different system. Yeah, time pressure is absolutely, you know, even in aviation, all the disasters have happened uh, because of a term that we use in aviation called get get their it, which means get you somehow items. want yeah. to get to a place and you want to bypass your common judgment of following a checklist, following the weather, listening to the weather, listening to the plane, listening to your own instinct. And you just want to get there, get there I test. And most of the disasters or fatal mistakes are because of, you thought, I'll give an example. And I kind of study these in my part-time. Let's say the weather was projected to be not so great. A rational decision would be, oh, we're going to fly tomorrow. But an irrational decision is, ah, I'm smart enough. I can navigate my way around. All I find a, a path to avoid the cell that I see on the map. Get the rightest, and you will eventually get sucked into it. And God forbid, there'll be a fatal accident. Well, um, get their itis may have killed Kobe Bryant in that tragic helicopter accident. There was fog, there was weather, there was. Probably, you know, pressure to perform, get their itis was probably at least a factor. I think so. Um, I'm trying to piece that story in my head. Yes, definitely. Uh, I remember, you know, at least the re report said, yes, it was fog. The, the chopper was flying way too low to beat the clouds and because of the visual and they didn't see the mountain ahead of them because they were too low. Yeah. Um. One other thought on checklists, um, when you talk about the debugging or if an engine goes out, um, you know, we can see the movie about the miracle on the Hudson River. And I've seen Captain Sullenberger, Sully, uh, speak at a conference. And like, for one, he is the most gracious about reminding everybody that he had a, a co-pilot, uh, Jeff Skilling, I think was his name, that that was a team effort. And, you know, he talked, I remember him talking about how there was no specific checklist that 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 answered the question of what do we do when we've taken off? We've lost both engines because of a bird strike, and we have to decide: do we go back to the airport or land in the river? Like there, there wasn't that magic checklist, but they had different checklists. And you know, it sounded like the real skill there was knowing which checklists to go to, of trying to restart the engines, evaluating the decision of go back or or not. And you know, as we know. Um, from, from the movie, I think this was this is realistic that that Sullenberger was criticized. They, you know, they say you made a mistake. You could have gotten back to the airport yeah. when I think, as it turned out, they finally decided through simulators that that probably wouldn't have happened. 
that he did make the right decision. Absolutely agree. So one thing what happens in, and I think it shows in the movie Sully as well, that when a crash happens, the you know F, uh, NTSB, when they come out, what they're looking for is the situation, what the pilot and the plane went into. Was it the weather? Was it the mind of the pilot? Was it the plane itself? And checklist helps better situational awareness and decision-making. So they're looking at using the checklist. Did the pilot make the right decision or he didn't follow the procedures? Now, if we if the pilot followed all the procedures and the checklist and things have happened not in the pilot's favor or the plane's favor, NTSB always gives a card saying, all right, we trust the pilot's judgment. But in the first place, you didn't check whether the plane had enough fuel. And most of the time, at least in private aviation, uh, single engine Cessnas, the accidents or ditching of the plane happens because somebody's running out of fuel. Again, get the right test. I don't want to stop for 40 minutes and you know refuel the plane. I think it's just enough. I'm going to get there. Fuel burns faster than you could think. And then, of course, you lose the engine in the air. So I think they look at, or NTSB looks at, you know, did you follow the procedure based on the book that they have written? And yeah. there's a huge amount of documentation on that. Yeah. And, and, and I believe one other part of the story was um, we talk about imp- learning from incidents or near misses or situations that I, I, I believe there were updates made to some of the checklists to help make that decision of, you know, go back or um, or try to do an emergency landing somewhere that they that they identified. Well, you know, there there were some gaps. They used their best judgment and that they could learn from that to try to help pilots in the future. Yep, the checklists do get updated, but not that frequently. Uh, and unfortunately, in aviation, we kind of joke about it, and I'm sure you've heard it, that things do not move. You know, things just sit there. You know, you die and come back, and it could be same checklist for the jokes of it, because... It takes time to ratify the changes, you know, push it down to every plane manufacturer, to every aviation enthusiast, every flying club. It, and the reason is because they want to make sure that there's enough data to make those changes available to everybody. So yeah. they're, they're very careful about rolling any new changes out. Yeah. Well, probably as 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 a passenger, I'll say, yeah, they 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 should be careful. There's this fine line of like, don't be glacially slow. But yeah, you don't want them to be irresponsible either. So, um, well, our, our guest today is uh, Indus Kaitan. Um, before I wrap up, tell us a little bit about your current company, um, Colum. I you know, read a little bit about what you do, helping companies that are buying different SaaS software platforms. And it seems like from my reading of it, and I want to hear your explanation or correct me if I don't have this quite right, that that there are some there are mistakes companies make when there's this portfolio of different SaaS applications, different people spending money, kind of, you know, talk about that situation and and how you help companies either, you know, discover or maybe prevent mistakes when it comes to to buying systems like these. Yeah, a good dovetail into the mistakes part of it. Thank you for that. 
so software has you know helped the humanity in general it kind of helps us do things faster quicker and more efficient but the dark side of software at least in saas what has happened in the last 5 to 8 years it has become increasingly easy to buy one so imagine i'll give you an analogy in consumer business you buy a subscription for netflix prime peacock uh hulu <laughs> right. and and what not you have like eight or 10 subscription services and then you forget about it because you needed them when you needed them now kids are into college and whatever you're still paying for eight of them on a monthly basis like waste of you know 100 dollars oh, every, every right. month well so real quick on that i mean on a consumer level we see advertising for different services or apps that will help you as an individual pull out and say oh yeah there's some of these subscriptions i'm not using so i, I can get rid of it but you're you're helping do that on on, on a corporate scale business right? we we able to do that same or we're doing the same for businesses so we go out and say hey mr ecmec corp you have these 150 applications you know looks like 35% of them are duplicates and then you only have 500 employees 300 people use it 200 people are never using these applications you're spending let's say 3 million dollars you could save half a million dollars or a million put some process in place so we come in and help trim the fat and as a nutritionist put a diet plan that you remain in hygiene forever <laughs> so it's not just fix it and let the problem come back a couple of years later you're you're putting some preventative procedures in place to make sure that the company doesn't end up in that same situation again duplicate systems how do you, how do you prevent that right yeah so we become the flow of the software purchase cycle we inspect it we flag it we catch it we cancel it so that the same mistakes do not get repeated and you know you don't have an accumulated shelfware of software which is losing money yeah and you're able to do that in a way that doesn't slow the business down in signing up for services that they really do need right away right correct so the users remain productive of course some users may come back after a year say hey where is my account that you took away <laughs> hey you didn't use it for a year and now right. you're asking for it yeah. but yeah rationally you know if you're using something regularly in a 90 day cycle it will remain as usual others we will recommend cutting canceling and downsizing yeah yeah i guess what i was asking maybe you know as we wrap up here do you, do you help find a balance where having some approvals or procedures in place is helpful without it becoming um too much of a bureaucracy Yep so we institute a workflow process where people can request new applications the system will automatically catch let's say you are a microsoft teams environment you know all deployed and some employee says i need 50 licenses of zoom it will automatically flag hey why do you need 50 licenses of zoom because you already have meetings then it will go through an exception change get approval before you are allowed to use this duplicate software So you put these processes in place automatically catching and then exception handling and hence you know the diet plan remains intact. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I will put uh, a link uh, to the company's website in the show notes and um link to what you'd posted on LinkedIn about your story and and um other resources for people who want to learn more. So again, our guest today has been Indus Ketan. He's a founder and CEO of uh Colum. So Indus, thank you. I I can't You know, you know, I think you're a perfect fit for the podcast. I don't know how, how many people could come on and and talk about um a, you know, a big entrepreneurship mistake and piloting and checklists all together. 
I'm, I'm glad we could do that. Absolutely, yeah, fantastic sharing some of the tidbits and stories that I've experienced. So, you know, great having the, you know, this conversation. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for being here. And good, Thank you. Good, luck, good luck with the company this time around. Well, again, thanks to Indus K10 for being a fantastic guest today. To learn more about him, his company, Colum, and more, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 222. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.